Feminist Buzz Kills Live, the show that is not surprised that Kristen Cinema is finally living her truth. I'm Moji Alabode L, and I'm joined by my co-host Marie Khan. Hello, all. Coming up on today's show, we are bringing you some of the best interviews of this year. We sat down with an amateur pilot who's harnessed his community to do abortion travel, and we spoke with an amazing lawyer and advocate who got abortion access advanced in her home country of Colombia and other parts of Latin America. Plus, I don't know how we did it, but we got peaches of the teaches of peaches to send us off into 2023. Oh my God, it's been an eventful year. At least we got some great folks to steer us through the detritus. Let's travel back in time to when we interviewed a dude who's doing dope things for abortion access. As the number of states with open abortion clinics has been drastically reduced, more pregnant people have to fly to reach care. Mike Bonanza of Elevated Access, a new practical support organization that opened in 2022, joined us to talk about this nonprofit network of volunteer pilots with a mission to fly patients to gender affirming care and abortion services. Welcome, Mike. Alrighty, Mike. It's so great to have you joining us. Right off the bat, I want to Ask what prompted you from going from being a guy with a plane to starting <laughs> Elevated Access? Sure. Uh, so really the biggest part of that that um, made that happen was last spring, I was going through an anti-racism workshop and that was full of white people trying to you know break down our whiteness and figure out how we all play roles in white supremacy, even if we don't use the N-word or anything like that. And uh, is that a thing? Who yeah. has ever heard of that? Really? Yeah. You yeah. haven't heard of that? Oh, are you not on TikTok, Liz? <laughs> I didn't know. I'm going to yeah. read up on this white supremacy. Yeah. Yeah. We all have a role. So, yeah. The, um, so I was doing some self reading with that and I came across an article that was talking about how white supremacy and systemic racism are really built into the anti abortion movement and people's inability to access abortion. And as a pilot looking for a way to work on social justice issues, um, it was kind of like aha moment um, that made me want to get into it. So yeah, that's where it started. That's incredible, Mike. Um, so who are the people that Elevated Access are here to support in a company? Uh, I hear you guys just celebrated your first client transport with Midwest Ooh. Access Coalition. to <laughs> the fireworks. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. So you know, one of the things that's really important to me is looking to the people that have been doing this work for years already. Uh, that's why rather than when I had that realization about uh, racism and, and abortion access, I didn't just immediately put myself out there to say, hey, I'm giving people rides that need access to abortion. It started out with volunteering for, for Midwest Access Coalition for a year doing IT work. And in that, I was open and upfront that not only am I volunteering to do IT work, I'm here to learn about how abortion access works and how potentially pilots could help people get to abortion safely and freely and with a lot less hassle and a lot less, a lot faster. And what we learned actually is there's a lot of opportunity even before uh 
D-Day on Friday, there was a lot of opportunity to help people access abortion. Um, so for example, for somebody who maybe has small children at home or even just kids at all, can't get away for an overnight trip to maybe a clinic that's further away, or for somebody that's working multiple jobs and, and has a hard time getting away for, for a day or two, uh, we are able to get somebody moved pretty quickly. So like in this example we just did, uh, we took somebody that would have been a 10 hour drive and probably a round trip and probably overnight stay in a hotel room. We were able to uh, meet them at the airport and get them back home that they were door to door from their home and back home again in, from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. on the same day. And so, yeah, she was able to get back to her kids, you know, not have to worry about too much work hassle. I mean, obviously still have to take the day out of her life to do that, but a lot better than a two day or three day affair. So how I, I can't imagine that it's it's logistical that like you would and maybe it is and I don't know, but like that you would just be on a website and that like I need an abortion. I'm looking around. How do I get there? I find elevated access. Um, can people access you directly or do people access you through other organizations? Right. Similar to how I started the organization of looking to people who have already been working in this space, we're not trying to recreate anything that already exists. And so since the practical support organizations like Midwest Access Coalition, Access RJ, you know, all the, all the organizations that are out there have already been providing people assistance with lifts and bus tickets, train tickets, hotel rooms, we're leaving that part of the, of the work uh, to them because they have the expertise, they know the tricks of how to get those systems to work. And because of that, we're having people go through those organizations because we're, we're not going to know how best to talk to somebody about whether flying with one of our pilots is the best way for them to get access to their abortion. And so we really want to make sure that we lean on the experts that have been doing this work for so many years already to figure that out for somebody and work together with them to provide them sort of that holistic approach, as opposed to us just being out here as pilots taking random people uh, to do that. In fact, I even just had somebody call up, call us a little bit ago. Um, they had some sort of mix up with their appointment and they called, called me to see if they could fly with one of our pilots. And I said, I think we can uh, do that on that date, but what I need you to do is contact Midwest Access Coalition first and they'll work you through that process. And if it's, uh, if it seems right to them too, that you'll fly with us, they'll put you back in contact and we'll go from there. And how do you train your pilots to know how to speak with like competency and, and, and with respect to patients? Like how do they learn right. how to do that? Well, really that, that starts first with our vetting process. And so when, when pilots apply, they have to submit uh, not only their pilot credentials so that we can make sure that they're actually a legit pilot. Uh, they also have to submit some things that we can check on their background to make sure that they're actually in support of our mission. Um, the thing that we're doing in addition to that is that I really wanted to make this a very human-centered activity uh, so that we're really serving the people that are, are out here trying to travel just to access their health care. And so we're working on some additional training with some uh, social workers that I know in my community that uh, we're going to base, essentially baseline all of our pilots to help them have a better chance of knowing how 
to read somebody to understand that they want to talk, they want to be quiet, they want to be distracted. Uh, if they start talking about their abortion or their the gender affirming care they're traveling to access, because we're also doing that, is you know the right language to use, the the things that are going to make them feel supported, make them feel safe. Because really, the the nightmare scenario for me is besides somebody trying to infiltrate our our operation, our nightmare scenario would be any passenger that just didn't have a good experience with our pilots. And so, I want to really prepare our pilots to be as supportive as possible. Wow, oh, it just sounds like so incredible. It really does sound incredible, and I um, it's funny because I'm like, oh wow, it seems like it could be terrifying for a patient, but um. It seems it sounds like you're trying to have safeguards for that. What does this cost a patient? Like, who's paying for this flying business? Um, Perhaps to the benefit of of the passengers and the practical support organizations from the FAA's rules perspective, we can't charge a dime for this, even if I don't know that we would, even we could, but we actually can't, from a regulation perspective, charge anything for this. So the pilot themselves, not even elevated access, pays completely for that trip. They pay for the airplane rental. If they're renting an airplane, they pay for the fuel. If there's any landing fees at the airport they're going to, they pay for all of that. Um, since we are a 501c3, uh, the pilots can do a tax deduction for that if they want to put it do it, put it in with their taxes. But also, we're, we have paperwork pending with the FAA that with the money we're raising, that we're hoping to be able to do reimbursements to pilots for those expenses too. Because as you can imagine, it's not cheap to fly. And for somebody like me who has more time than I do money, um, I might be able to do six or seven flights in a month if my costs are reimbursed versus, say, two or three. And so if you think about that across the now 600 plus interested pilots we have, that would really amplify our ability to to get more people to their abortion. That's so great. You know, I wanted to um, I know you're going to jump in on a sec, Marie, but one thing I was thinking about is, you know, we're looking now at um, (laughs) at ways to once you fly in the air, like are you in domestic air? Can people have abortions on a plane? Um, that's a good question. You know, that's, that's nobody's <laughs> asked that one yet. And I've heard people talking about, you know, could we take a, a, a ship out past the international or the, you know, the, the boundary waters and, and go out there and nobody's asked that. I think there was even a movie about, about like a crime syndicate that did stuff like that. And of course it was completely farcical, right. but nobody's asked that question yet. And, uh, obviously it would take a much bigger airplane than any of our pilots use. It would take a airliner size airplane to do that. There are groups out there that do eye care and I believe even like um, some other treatments uh, airborne. But as you can imagine, you hit one pocket of turbulence. That's not what you want when you're trying to do that. So yeah, but a medication abortion is just a pill. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know. I'm not trying to get you into any trouble. I was just like thinking (laughs) as you're in the air, it's like, oh, at what point does it become international air, like Uh, international waters? And like, how does that play out? And what is the sky? And what are things? I have no idea anymore. (laughs) Here, here, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a fun fact is that from a U.S. federal law perspective, the FAA has full authority over all airspace in the United States. And that doesn't mean at 500 feet, 1,000 feet or whatever. Literally, when you are off the ground, not touching the ground, the FAA is who has authority. It's federal law that has a supremacy in that. And so theoretically. So you can hover above something? You can get a jetpack? You can get a drone? Yeah, yeah, you can get a jetpack. You could be running. Oh my God, this is like, this is all new. Uh, You know, just like if you're above the ground and the FAA says, 
it's federal land, yeah. federal air. Yeah. Oh my God, you we didn't glide. Can that. you imagine glider abortions? Glider like you take a pill <laughs> while you're gliding. This is or- next level. Oh my gosh, you're just opening our eyes in so many ways. Get, I can't even some, take it. Get some of those athletes out there that have a four foot vertical leap, and and there yes. you go. Yes, hundred percent. I mean, parasailing is a thing, y'all. I don't know. I'm just like, I'm going to now, this is a whole nother show. Um, But let's get back to um, you, Mike, because holy moly, um, this is incredible. So if we're talking about um, where you're at now, how many pilots do you have right now? And, um, and when do you feel like you're going to be ready to get into like some full swing situation? What more, what more things do you need to lay out before you are actually like working your magic in a real rotational way. Yeah. And so, you know, we're, I mean, with the way things are in the country right now, there's probably no top end at which we'll need to grow. Uh, the Illinois Department of Public Health estimates that in the next year, 20,000 people are going to come to Illinois for an abortion. And that's just Illinois. I can't imagine the other uh, Haven states. And so we're really just, we're going to keep adding pilots until pilots stop coming to us. Uh, but right now we have had over 670 pilots uh, express their interest. And for the um, for the sense of scale, on May 1st, we had myself, the other founder and a third pilot. So if you think in the last eight weeks, we've gone from three pilots to over 670 interested, uh, people really wanna work on this, this issue. But like I said, we do have that vetting process they have to go through. So there's some some time that goes along with that. And we've fully vetted about 50 pilots right now. And we've had another uh, about 30 or so that have submitted their applications. As you can imagine, to do their application, they have to gather some materials. We have to send us photos of their pilot's license, the copies of their flight records, things like that. So we can be sure that they're, you know, the appropriately experienced pilot because we don't let somebody who just got their license go out and do this. And so there's a little bit of a lag in that, but, you know, we have more than 30 states covered at this point with at least one pilot. And with all of those 670 that, that expressed interest since, um, well, in these last eight weeks, I know that we're going to cover every 50 states because I definitively remember seeing at least one from Alaska and one from Hawaii in that 670. So I know we're going to have pilots in every state very quickly. Well, let me ask you this question. Having said that, um, there's a couple of things. Um, I want to talk about uh, where you land as a small plant. You know, could you have like backlash from somebody who owns a small airfield who's anti-abortion when they get wind? And two, in states that are now having these weird bounty hunting laws, um, how does that affect a pilot who might want to take off from a state that is sort of in like a Texas or that has or or, or, uh, Oklahoma that has these things in place? We have multiple things built into our process to help manage that. So first is that we don't actually ask the practical support organization why somebody is traveling. And we tell them that it can be somebody who's going for care. It could be one of their staff or volunteers just needs to get to a different location to do work on the ground. It could be a healthcare provider, any of those things. And so there are multiple possibilities, even though abortion or gender affirming care is going to be the most common ones. Uh, it means that you know we give the passenger and the pilot some protection of they don't know why they're being flown. And, and so you know, it's a little bit more private. 
But also at these airports, there's no ticketing. There's no TSA security. Um, at most I've ever gotten at an airport was somebody asking like if, if I needed any help or needed any guidance for where I needed to go. And nobody's asked me for why I was there, what my name was or anything like that. And so that, with the number of flights that are happening, I took actually a screenshot of uh, what it looked like in the, in the airspace of the whole country when we were doing our first flight a few weeks ago, our first official uh, passenger. And if you can imagine the, the, a map of the United States covered by little tiny graphical airplanes, pretty much everything east of the Rockies was a little tiny airplane. And so there's no way that people are going to know that that's why somebody's traveling. Just because there are so many airplanes that are out there, it's a really, really private and safe. And so, you know, there's that aspect to it. And since you also asked about, you know, private um, airport owners, most airports are owned by cities or counties. And so, you know, certainly a city or a county might, you know, ask questions, but again, there's no requirement that pilots say anything. We also don't keep track of who our passengers are uh, as pilots, like there's no requirement for that. Uh, so when an airplane is in the air, uh, nobody knows who's the pilot or who the passengers are. I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. I'm getting a taste of how the elite live oh yeah <laughs> yep. and uh it's very amazing and also by the way if there's any elites i doubt there are but if you're listening to this podcast and you have a private plane and you want to lend it out you're like how can i support from the hamptons maybe send your plane out maybe do that so i'm gonna like just say rich people with planes get, get on board Yep, and actually, we've had a few people that have uh, business jet style aircraft uh, as pilots that have offered to help, and I have kind of put a little asterisk on them because when we get those requests from, say, Texas to Colorado, which is still even for for the kind of plane that I fly, is several hours you know, of flying for a business jet. It might just be a two or three hour flight, and so we're I'm going to make sure to keep special track of those people with those jets. So it's all, you're only half joking when you say that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think she's joking at all, actually. I actually there's no humor death, uh, for sure. I think that was one of the most interesting things that I learned, Mike, or I should say, I guess, at Midwest Access Coalition learned was the just the number of these small municipal airports that are around that people can for like, well, at no cost, like you said, this is this is set up with the FAA that it's a donated cost and everything. Um so the ability to get to folks in really rural spaces is awesome. That redu can reduce the stress on someone who hasn't traveled by by um, air before and hasn't gone through an airport and navigated security and checkpoints and everything. It can really make travel easier for folks that are being targeted by racism and xenophobia and other types of, of laws here. So those, like, it just, it makes me so happy about that, the re reduction in confusion. Um, I know we talked a little bit about how you're being embraced by the pilot community also and everything, which is just really exciting. I did um, I did wonder, we talked a little bit about this too, about areas where, especially in supporting trans care, the opportunities to engage and activate queer pilots and pilots that like aren't the white dudes that many of us see and recognize as being those folks. And I'm wondering how that's going or how you see that direction going too. Sure. And, and don't get me wrong, the pilot community is still very much a white men's world, which is something I'd like to see change. Uh, but if you looked at our, our pilot roster, and this is going purely based off of names, which is, I will admit, is very presumptuous to make. Um, but we, And we just started, just recently started collecting pronouns on our pilot application form. I think that we have about 40% of our pilots are, are women. Um, 
We also have a number awesome. of people that are, number of people that are trans. We have people of a variety of, of ethnicities. Um, we may our pilot volunteer list may be the most diverse set of pilots of any organization in the country or the world for that matter. Um, this is an example in the pilot population. Women make up only about seven percent of all pilots that have a, a license in the country. But it's also like we are we are constantly fielding questions from cis dudes how can i help what can i do like if you're a pilot and you're a cis dude and you're out there in the world just piloting um wow this is something that could be super cool so i think it's really great so mike we have to wrap it up but can you tell folks how pilots can sign up and go through the vetting process at elevated access and then how folks can support with donations at elevated access most definitely. So for pilots, they can go to elevatedaccess.org and there's a pilots page on there that describes all of our requirements and what our flights typically look like, as well as I just added an FAQ with some of the common questions and they'll just fill out our contact form to let us know that they're interested and they'll get then the application form after that. For people that want to support us financially, uh, elevatedaccess.org slash donate. And after uh, everybody asking how they can donate, you can donate on our web form. We've got Act Blue, we've got Tiltify for the gamers out there. Uh, pretty much any way that people have asked to donate, we've set it up. And so however people want to send us their money, go for it. Excellent. Thanks so much. Thank you, Mike. Thanks so much, Mike. Thank you very much. It really is a bright spot of optimism this year, the new organizations and volunteer communities activating for abortion and gender affirming care. You can follow Elevated Access on Instagram and Twitter at E-L-E-V-A-T-E-D-A-X-S and on TikTok at Elevated Access. If you're a pilot or know a pilot who can volunteer, go to elevatedaccess.org to sign up. While gyneticians worked overtime in the U.S. to gut care for pregnant people, Latin American countries have been easing restrictions and decriminalizing abortion care. Paola Avelliguian, executive director of the Women's Equality Center and a human rights lawyer, joined us to talk about these successful efforts in Colombia, Argentina, and Mexico. Welcome, Paula. We are so excited to have you here on the show with us. Um, so to get started, can you tell us about the work Women's Equality Center does and where, you're, where in the world your impact is felt? So I am super excited to be here in the podcast. This is really uh, an amazing opportunity. We work mainly in Latin America in different countries. We um, have done work, uh, and right now we have active work in El Salvador, Honduras, Colombia, Argentina, Chile, uh, Dominican Republic, and, and, um, and in Mexico. So it's like all over the region, but half of the team is based in the United States and half of the team is based in the region. We, the, even the team that is based in the United States, we are all immigrants. So we always have this like kind of dual perspective of feeling, um, the connections that maybe sometimes are not being seen between the work that is being done here and the work that we do on the ground. And a lot of what we do is specifically working and supporting organizations that are leading the fight for abortion rights and expanding abortion rights in Latin America and making sure that those stories and that work doesn't get to be unseen. Because many of the organizations do fantastic work and they are really putting their their skin at risk Mm -hmm. with the battles that they're having. But many times the the international media and attention doesn't get to get to those stories. So we try to serve as a bridge and highlighting 
the stories, highlighting the issue, highlighting the reality of what is happening with abortion rights in, in Latin America. Paula, I'm so excited to have you here. You're one of the folks in particular that Colombia, your home country, mm-hmm. you, you're you one of the individuals that hopefully we're going to see in textbooks if they exist, you know, years <laughs> from now. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit what you felt like the turning point in that fight towards decriminalization was to get to Colombia to the point now that that folks with uteruses have what they get to have. Yeah. So I would like to divide these into two aspects of the answer. One part was the legal turning point and the other part was the societal, the society, you know, the, 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 what we call social decriminalization turning point in Colombia. I think the legal turning point was the result of years of advancing slowly in courts litigation in how practically since 2006, we were able to jump from a total abortion ban to uh, a country with exceptions. And then uh, a lot of our work was to use a human rights framework. So very different than the United States, where it was based on the state should not be involved in your decisions. Mm-hmm. Here we want the state to provide the services and tell them, wait a second, this is a health issue and health is a right. And therefore you need to fulfill this right. So we were advancing a lot of those health broader expectations in multiple issues. We started with contraception. So in Colombia, you have free accessible contraception for everybody without having to go to doctors or prescriptions, which is something they, they surprised. Wow. I actually brought my IUD from Colombia to be implanted here before we had Obamacare. That's because amazing! <laughs> I wasn't going to pay $500 wow. and in Colombia is like, it was like five dollars. Oh my goodness! In a pharmacy, you know, like so. But those, so we started with the small bottles in expanding this idea that healthcare and reproductive healthcare is something that the state should provide, right? Yes. But then, then it was the social point, and the social point, unfortunately, it has a sadness to it, and it was that we were dying, like mm-hmm. we were getting hurt. If we were not dying, we were. Um, getting injured, but um, the exception system wasn't working. Even uh, the exception system included the women and anybody who could, who is pregnant could have access in cases of rape. But victims of rape don't want to go to the police to say, I'm sorry, I, you know, I need an abortion yeah. because I was raped. Like, it's just, not, it's not, that's not how it works. It's re-victimization. So it's re-victimization. Also, don't even start me on like how the police handles like <laughs> those complaints in general. But on top yeah. of that, to go and say, you know, I, I need an abortion like that is just so people were accessing abortions in in murders that were not necessarily the safest one, even though there they is accessible to uh, medication abortion, which we know is safe. Those resources were limited to people who had privilege. So we we have an expression in in Latin America that says las ricas abortan las pobres se mueren. Rich women have abortion, poor women die, and that's what this was happening. There, uh, those who have money and fell in power and have resources will always find a way to have access to abortion, but those who are in the most vulnerable situations were felt more comfortable going through anybody instead of going to an actual clinic to ask for abortion because they, they 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 were afraid. So people were getting criminalized, people were going and people were dying. And highlighting those stories, it was a turning point for Colombia to say, you know, it's our people. They're our, this is, this is us. 
and we are letting this happen. And I think that that helped to change a little bit of the narratives in society of like, no, this is not the country that we should that we should be. I love that. I feel like changing hearts and minds is really an important mm. part that I think in this country we we've lost in our mm. in our fight. <laughs> sort of um in yeah, I think that's how we are even where we are right now. Um, you have been and your organization have been holding El Salvador's government accountable mm. for the systematic persecution and criminalization of people who experience miscarriage or other sort of emergencies that pregnant people experience. And because of your work, over 50 people have been freed from being jailed just for basically Mm -hmm. having an obstetric emergency. So how do you approach your work in spaces like El Salvador differently? Is it the same approach? It seems a little tougher there. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's very, it's very different. You know, I am all for always pushing what we believe. And if you ask me what I believe is that nobody She'll be telling me what to do with my life and with my body, period. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, this is it. Like, at uh, at any point in the pregnancy, I actually had a son. I actually have had a miscarriage. And I cannot imagine, like, having to, like, give explanations or having, in even in the pregnancy, not being able to make decisions. Like, I just cannot even consider that. And I believe that that should be the right for everybody. I also believe that the state should guarantee those services for everybody. They, that is a duty of the government, right, to, to guarantee those services. But in El Salvador, the situation is so dramatic. El Salvador has a total abortion ban. Women don't even, and people don't even in cases of rape, don't even in cases of incest, nothing. You are you are about to die, they let you die. Um, they, to talk about choice in the context of El Salvador, it just it just will do more harm than good. Mm-hmm. So we are very conscious of how we talk with our partners, of how we approach the work in each context to make sure that the work is always grounded in how they feel comfortable talking about the issue and know how we believe they should be. So when we started working on Salvador, and Salvador was one of the experiences that changed my life completely. Um, we start talking about trying to grant three exceptions in El Salvador, jumping from a total abortion ban to this idea that maybe there are cases in which people should have access to healthcare, right? And should have access to abortion, um, which is a very conservative speech and narrative in, in general, but that, is, that was the reality of the case in El Salvador. And um, when when we went, they have told us that we were going to visit a prison where we assumed we were going to visit, uh, it was a women's prison, so we assumed we were going to visit women who had been criminalized because of abortion. When I entered the prison uh, in conditions that are awful and undescribable of what prison settings are in general, but especially in, in El Salvador, the women came out and they started sharing their stories. And None of their stories were abortion stories. All of their stories were miscarriage stories. All of them. My first instinct was, uh, you know, maybe there is something off here. So I went to the lawyer to decide. I was like, what is happening? Like, maybe they are no, you know, like maybe it's, it's a language barrier, even though we were speaking Spanish, maybe the way that you say things is different because this cannot be possible that you can be in prison because of a miscarriage. Right. But still, Bert, that, that just sentenced to 20 or 30 years. In some of the cases, the child had survived 
and they were still sentenced for attempted murder for 15 years in prison. And I'm like, who does that benefit? How like how is how is even that possible, right? How is that even legal? And uh, so the lawyer was like, try to help us. So we start advising the legal team. And when you start looking at the files, you see things like a judge saying, of course, you try to get rid of the pregnancy because you are single. Of course, you try to hide this because you don't have money. Those were the motives that apparently these women have because of that. So it was one of the hardest work that I have done. Um, because it wasn't not only the fact that they were grieving their freedom, they were also grieving the loss of their children. It was just something that I only connect in my head when I lost my own pregnancy. But some of them had already set up rooms. Some of them already had names. It was just, and, and on top of that, they are like being handcuffed to bed and sent from the hospital to, to, to prison. It's just... It, it was completely out of this world. So it was a very, very hard work. And at that moment, also the conditions of the prison in El Salvador were awful. So at that moment, we needed to clarify, even though they were in prison because of the total abortion ban, because any type of suspicion of the, the way that these cases work is like the women arrive in the middle of a miscarriage and because of course, all the women shared certain things. They were all women of lower economic social backgrounds. 90% of them were single, so arrived at the hospital without a man. Uh, they were mm. um, uh, women with um, no access to education, so they don't have the agency to defend yourself, you know, to, like, give explanations for you. And because the doctor says, oh, well, I don't know what you did, so therefore I am denouncing you and sending you to the police. Right. It's just like crazy. A doctor, a that man. That's heartbreaking. I'm going to assume a man doesn't yeah. understand what happens here. So what happens? You land in prison. I had a conversation with a prosecutor in El Salvador one time that he didn't believe the client because she said that she had bleeding during pregnancy. And he was like, that's impossible. Women don't bleed what? during pregnancy. And he was telling me. He was telling me. <laughs> It was I had a pregnancy and I bled. Oh, I, was like, <laughs> I was like, that is not uncommon. But these all these stereotypes and all these assumptions mm -hmm. about how bodies with uterus operate, right? All these preconceptions about it. And also all these preconceptions about how usually women will lie. It's the same thing that happens when we go and denounce rape, right? It's like, right. really? Exactly. It's the exact it's same, same thing. thing. It's, it's the, the same, same man doing the same thing. thing. It's the yep. same thing. And it's the same thing in the United States. And it's the same thing in El Salvador. And it's the same thing in Colombia. It's the same thing in Argentina. And it's patriarchy, right? It's, it's, it's like, yes. really, that's what it is. That That is that is so much to take. It. Like, just, we don't have discussions about you, but you're landing in the same spot for abortion, miscarriage. Like, yeah, like those folks, there was no reason. They're not lying to you. No. They literally are landing in there. Also, I think that when we think about the dystopian future that Dobbs has unleashed in the U.S., that is that's what we it. see, right? We already see it in yes. some states. Like people love to sort of externalize it and say, oh, that's happening in El Salvador. It's been happening in the U.S. for a while yes. also. Yes. Um, 
What do you wish that you would see more from U.S. activists fighting for abortion access, both here, but also in the sort of larger Americas, right, yeah. which include Latin America? So the first thing is I would love to see a more united movement between Latin America and the United States. Um, mm-hmm. And the aunties have a united movement globally. Very much. Yeah. Heartbeat International everywhere, is everywhere. everywhere. And we still believe that we are that different. We don't even have conference with all of us connect. We don't even have events with it. So, so that would be my first wish that we start learning from each other because as being seated in the United States, I have learned so much that I have brought to Latin America that I would love to do it the other way around too, right? Like there's so many lessons from Latin America and how to even survive in the middle of very restrict environments that we know that could be useful for the U.S. right now, right? So like I would love us to be able to exchange and have like more of a community. And in the U.S. case specifically, and this was one of the, the, the lessons that we learn in Latin America is you need to pressure your allies more than you pressure your enemies. I feel that we concentrate mm-hmm. so much in like calling out the bad guys that we forget to call out the good guys in parentheses, but the good guys for not doing their job and not doing their duty yeah. and what they need to do. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's something they, they in Latin America, maybe because they are not good and bad guys, they are just like all guys. Uh, they are all mixed with each other. We needed to pressure everybody <laughs> equally. And I think that that's something that in the U.S. we need to do as well. I'm so glad you brought that up. You know, Marie and I, even in researching this and other research we were doing for the podcast today, we found out about Red Necesito Aborto Mm -hmm. in Mexico that is sending pills to people in America who need them. Like, I don't know. I feel like people in Mexico get that we need help in the U.S. And that was really exciting for both of us. Um, And again, something we found out this week, like researching for this pod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, the partnerships we don't know are there, but we find out when like mass gender-based violence because that's what this is and biological like reproductive violence coming down on our communities but yeah we need to not get to this point before we start talking about it and and the mexico group there were like actually a few uh groups that in the border as soon as like the texas ban took place yeah they were like ready to line up and and um, Veronica Cruz, which is one of the most amazing advocates from Las Libres and, and a dear friend. Yes. When, yes. When, I, when I talked to Veronica and I was like, you know, they can be at risk. I was like, Paula, we need to do what we need to do because that's how we have been done it mm-hmm. before. And this is what we need to do. This is this is mm-hmm. what you do. You know, it's solidarity across uh, borders always. Uh, well, I, I am so glad you got to join us and everything. I was going to close this out with one, um, I guess one more question and your final thoughts. What do you wish more people understood about the criminalization of pregnant people? Then not only people who actually choose over their bodies get criminalized, but then when you are criminalizing a health procedure, as it is an abortion, you are putting at risk everybody. So For you who don't believe in abortion and they want a pregnancy and you end up in a situation where you need to go to the hospital for healthcare in a state that is criminalizing, you might be under suspicion. Right now, you might think that that has nothing to do with you. Oh, no, 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 no. It has everything to do with you. And I think this is such, such idea of, oh, no, that will never happen to me because I will never choose an abortion criminalization is nothing about choice. 
criminalization is about criminalizing healthcare, punishing, persecuting people just for existing, for who we are and what do we have inside. I, I have always said this is, has never been about abortion. If you really want to reduce the number of abortions, you know what you have to do. You need to have access to contraception. You need to have a sexual education. You need to have a free abortion. You need to have mortality, comprehensive care. You need to have parental leave. Those, All of those things will reduce the number of abortions if that is really your policy goal. What they are doing in restricting is trying to control us. And they are not controlling us because we are choosing. They are controlling us because of who we are. Because we are a threat to their system, we are a threat to their existence. And I think the 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 best way to control us is to send us to prison and to criminalize it. Like that's just going to happen. I mean, and we have seen how criminalization has been a tactic from also white supremacists for a very long time to put down and and black people. Like it it is in like we know it. So it's not going to be different when it comes to criminalizing people with uterus. We are a threat of who they are, so they are going to send us to prison. And I think regardless of if it's a choose abortion or versus a miscarriage or other type of situation. And the other part is that when you open the door of a criminalization of a health services, that's just the start. They are going to start with this, but we already seen that they are trying to criminalize uh, and they are trying to ban uh, health procedures and health support for trans people. Like this is just mm-hmm. this is there is this is you, you are allowing one thing. This is just going to come next. And the, the, in Honduras, we are still fighting because there is a total ban on emergency contraception. So, like this is this is just the beginning. Uh, Which, to just to your point, if your point is to reduce abortions, abortion, emergency contraception is yeah. a, a, a tool right there in your arsenal. I know, but it's not. It's about power. It's always about power. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Paula, so much for joining us. I wish we could talk for an hour. It's been really wonderful getting to be in community with you. Thank you so much. This has been amazing and so much solidarity. And, you know, I am a Latina, oh. so hawks. Hugs for all of you. Oh, Paula, thank you. This was so good. Paula, what an amazing interview and guest. You can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at P-A-U-A-V-I-L-G and check out the work of Women's Equality Center at la-wec.org. Oh my gosh, we had the iconic performer Peaches join us during her 20th anniversary tour of the classic album Teaches of Peaches, and it was a blast. First, how are you? How have you survived the pandemic? Uh, you look like you are living your best life, so I want to know how you're really doing. I'm doing all right. I'm excited to get back to what I love doing, which is communicating, inciting my own. <laughs> Um, you know, powerful empowerment, fun celebration work, um, which doesn't happen online. That happens in person in front of people. And uh, that's what I'm going to do with my tour. So I'm really excited about that. I'm very happy that I don't have to fuck Joe Manchin or Derek Evans or or Missy Cicerello. I wouldn't fuck any three of them and they can no. go fuck themselves. That's right. Thank God for hands and thank God for devices so that we can always avoid terrible, terrible encounters with horrible people. Yeah. Um, 
So something that people ask me a lot is, because mm-hmm. my whole career has been combining, you know, sort of empowerment and exposing bullshit with my work. And they're always like, did you, right. did you bring your art to your work or did you bring your, your work to your art? Like did, what came first for you or did it come together at the same time? I just, I think it kind of like rolled out on itself as it um, became more like a confidence thing with the music and seeing that um, you have this um, in a good way, this, this ability to hold attention of people and to um, yeah, to hold attention or to um, bring, bring a point of view or, or change a point of view and um, then it, then I feel like it's also in a, the best way possible, a responsibility, you know? Yeah. So by, by your own confidence and, and uh, with, with the way that you're expressing whatever your art is, then you can also inject the, um, not just the empowerment by modeling what you're doing, but also, um, all that good stuff to be on the right side. Yeah. Um, Gender positivity, um, inclusion, just like the power of the pussy have been like front and center. Um, How, because you live in Berlin and because Mm -hmm. the U S is often so puritanical, how has it been received in like both of those places? I'm super curious. Or differently, actually. How's it? Well, how's it been different? I think it's there's there's it's more palpable in in America because it just feels like the people who who need it really need it, you know. And and <laughs> because you say there's so there's so much like polarizing ideas and polarizing just everything polarizing america is so polarizing it's so enticing and so vile and so in you know full of itself and also so depleted it's it's really incredible to have all these uh, different areas so so because of all that confusion i feel like um when i play there it's uh, it's really it's really exciting it, and in europe it's like yeah this is good. <laughs> this kind of faith. I think we mm-hmm. need a catharsis but, so badly. And one thing that you've always provided is that catharsis for folks. It's like, please, like we can just like exhale as you say and sing and emote everything we're feeling. And it's awesome. That's fantastic. Cause you know, I, I there's a lot of um, still, uh, subjects that, that people don't want to deal with that I'm singing about or, or the way that I'm expressing myself. People don't want to see uh, a person acting like that. Or, but um, the more I do it and with, with the more vigor, it, the, yeah, it just it becomes a celebration. You know, it's, yeah. it's always about it becoming a celebration instead of like an anger. Like Wah. there is an anger in it. There is a like, come on, stand up and do something. But um, it's also let's celebrate it. It's just important also to add humor to it because I want people to be drawn in and I want them 
I don't, I don't want them. I don't, I don't want people to be repelled by it. I want them to go like, Oh, Oh, Oh yeah. Oh, now I'm in it. And this is funny and I can relax a little bit and I can, you know, enjoy this. Yeah, I agree. And I think the fun is the best part. We've had to wrap this up. It goes so fast, but um, peaches it is so exciting to talk to you. The tour is going to be so incredible. Um, and please come back. Uh, it is going to be incredible. Thank you. Take care. Amazing. Um, and Peaches, and thank you. Out. Your show, your show is very important, and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh! Thanks so much for coming on. It's great. And make sure if you literally need to just like have your soul enriched and your guts like screamed out, and you want the best time ever. Go see this tour because if you didn't see it 20 years ago, you get to see it now. Teaches of Peaches. So great. Peaches is currently touring in Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. Check out teachesofpeaches.com for tickets and show info. A huge thank you to all our FBK guests this last year. We are looking forward to more fun and fact-checking in 2023. These are just three of the dozens of incredible interviews we had this year. You can listen to all our episodes to hear from so many experts and activists on the ground. Thanks so much for listening this year. We'll continue to be a reliable info hub and a source of humor as we face some really hard times ahead. We are in this together. We got you. Subscribe, 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 and tell your friends about us so they can also subscribe. Take time right now to write a review and give us five stars. It's the best way for our podcast to reach more people. And by doing so, you're helping more people learn about this assault on abortion access. To keep up on the latest Repro News, follow us on social at Abortion Front on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. FBK Live is edited by Remy Tournay and is produced by Abortion Access Front. Many groups are taking a break for the holidays, but check out our activist calendar at operationsaveabortion.com to see events near you or virtually happening in January. Next week, comedy duo Frangela will be counting down the best and second worst repro stories of 2022 with the Buzzkills. We are joining together for a co-pod, and here's a little preview. Hey, it's Liz, and I'm not just with my feminist Buzzkills live co-host, Marie and Moji. I'm also with Francis Collier and Angela Shelton, a.k.a. Frangela. Hello, everyone. We're joining forces for a special co-pod where we break down the best and the second worst stories about abortion in 2022. Because we all know what the worst was. No spoiler alerts on that one, unless you've been asleep all year, in which case, good morning. Mm, how are we even supposed to pick the second worst? Mm, so much trash to take out. And so little time. Yes, feminist buzzkills and Frangela. To infinity and beyond. We really need a Frangela buzzkills mashup. Okay, how about this? Feminist Buzzkills Live, when BS is popping, Franz Buzzkilla pops off. See what I did there? Yeah, we do. Yeah, don't do that again. Ever. Ever. Rude. Rude. And if you're in the Twin Cities area, December 30th and 31st, make sure you catch Liz's annual end-of-year show at the Parkway Theater. This is the 13th year Liz has returned to the Twin Cities to hilariously roast the year that was. And this year will not disappoint. Tickets are available at theparkwaytheater.com. 
2022 has been a doozy, but together we've been fighting back and will continue to fight in the new year. A fantastic way to support us is to join our Patreon. You'll support great content and get exclusive FBK merch and experiences. All pledges support this pod and all of our activism at Abortion Access Front. Pledge at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills. And now we leave you with Marie showing us some good times. On behalf of Feminist Buzzkills Live, may the abortion access force be with you. Feminist Buzzkills Live, the podcast from Abortion Access Front. When BS is popping, we pop off. New episodes drop Friday. If you want to support our podcast and all the work of Abortion Access Front, like, subscribe, and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills.